Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Williams. Our guest is our good friend, Alan J. Steinberg. Alan is a political analyst and former member of the George W. Bush administration. He was the head of the EPA Region 2, which encompasses New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and eight federal recognized Indian nations. You know, we're going to be covering quite a bit of ground here, so let's get to it over the next 30 minutes. Uh, you know, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell had a press conference this week to announce that the league would not require the players to stand during the national anthem, which I applaud. This has been, of course, a controversy started by President Donald Trump, who attacked the league and their players who chose to take a knee during the national anthem, exercising their First Amendment rights. I say that this was another political diversion by President Trump, and the league can weather this small backlash. What do you say about this, Alan? I'm not sure about that, Jim. I, I was thinking about uh, my whole history with pro football today because mm-hmm. you and I have similar Pittsburgh roots. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, if I can take just a minute to give an overall historical perspective of why sure. I think this is really critical for the league right now. Right. When you and I were growing up in the Pittsburgh area, the Pirates were everything, even when they had mm-hmm. lousy teams. Right. And the Steelers, uh, whom my son's, my son's generation thinks, oh, this has always been a great team, mm-hmm. they were terrible. No. In fact, they used to never sell out except when the Browns came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, football in those days was the sport you followed when baseball wasn't around. That's how right. it was defined. Mm-hmm. Then after the 1958 sudden death game between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants, the greatest mm-hmm. football game ever played up to that point, right. uh, all of a sudden pro football took off and Burt Bell died the following year. Pete Rozelle took over. Mm-hmm. Greatest marketing genius I've ever seen in sports. And mm-hmm. he was the greatest commissioner I've ever seen. And so pro football, it never ceases to amaze me. I remember when the players, no one knew who, who they were very much outside of the cities they played in. And it's grown into one of America's largest and most significant businesses. Now, yeah. evidently, the owners perceive that business to be in trouble now due to two things. Uh, one of them, which uh, you know we won't cover today, is the uh, head injuries, the CTE. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's a threat because younger people are going to shy away from playing uh, college football and going into the pros. I have mm-hmm. personal reason to believe that. But the second thing, which is temporary but may be very acute, is this controversy over the flag. Now, mm-hmm. last year I did an article for News Talk Florida where I talked about Colin Kaepernick, I absolutely defended his right Right. uh, to uh, kneel. At the same time, I thought it was counterproductive on his part. I totally sympathize with his cause, but Mm -hmm. I thought there would be a better way of him demonstrating that. Well, I feel the same way what's going on now. I I applaud the players who are kneeling. I don't think they're being disrespectful. I think that their cause is a just one. But I think that uh, it's ineffective in what they're doing. And in some ways, they're playing into the hands of America's chief bigot, Donald Trump. I mean, here is a man who has never spent one day in the military, a fat, out-of-shape president, and he's giving lectures on respecting the flag. It's nonsense. But I think the demonstrators are playing into his hands. And I think that the owners who want to sympathize with their players are are seeing a decline in uh, television uh, ratings. and. They're very worried. Uh, may, maybe their worries are uh, groundless to the extent that they're worried, but they're worried nonetheless. So the league is uh, really in a quandary on this. Alan, this past week, just to illustrate how crazy things have gotten, in Baltimore, where the uh, 
Ravens were taking on the Chicago Bears. What they've done is they've decided that they will um, take a knee prior to the anthem to pray for, you know, a specific uh, topic. And um, in this case, the cause was breast cancer awareness, which was uh, something that uh, was a league-wide situation. Um, when the players took a knee, they were actually fans, a large number of fans, actually, at M&T Bank Stadium that booed the players for actually taking a knee to pray for breast cancer awareness and for those who have passed uh, because of um, complications to breast cancer and other cancers. I mean, it's gotten that crazy. Uh, this is just something I think that uh, scares me as someone who has been a lifetime fan and someone who's covered um, sports for a number of years, that the crowds prior to games can get this amped up over something that uh, is, a again, a First Amendment right. I agree 100%, but here's the difficulty, Jim. Everything you're saying is accurate. But sports have always been a reflection of what America is about. Mm -hmm. And this is a bitterly divided nation. Right. You cannot, Howard Cosell used to say this. You cannot make sports a Camelot that mm -hmm. is immune from everything that is going on in society. Right. We saw this in 1947 when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. Absolutely. The kind of uh, physical threats he had. The behavior of the crowds in Cincinnati uh, that had a lot of southern rednecks from Kentucky mm -hmm. in those days that mm -hmm. were booing him. Uh, the disturbances that went on in the press when the Dodgers started to sign and mm -hmm. play more African-American players. That's all a reflection of society. Uh, you and I remember an era, because I think you and I have having such a common Pittsburgh background, mm -hmm. when you never heard of an African-American quarterback. Now, there was a guy in the high school, went to high school uh, soon after my mother graduated in New Kensington, a suburb of Pittsburgh. His name was Willie Thrower. He was actually the first African-American quarterback in the NFL. However, he got very little chance to play, even though Hallis was somewhat better than other, other owners at that time in terms of the integration of football. And Sid Luckman encouraged him. There's now a statue of Willie Thrower where I grew up. However... Mm -hmm. In those days, because of the uh, type of discrimination that was very prevalent in America, you hardly heard of him, and he was an important historical figure. Bill Russell, look when Bill Russell came to the Celtics. Yeah. Look at all the stories of what he faced. Look mm -hmm. at when the Lakers and the Celtics, the irony of it was that Red Auerbach was a tremendous force of integration. But right. when he signed Larry Bird and Kevin McHale, the Celtics became known not because of red, but they became known as the white team. And when mm -hmm. they played the Lakers, who were African-American, it became a racial cauldron. Mm -hmm. We cannot separate. What you're saying is sad. I have no solution for it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, sports will always be a reflection. The athletic arena will always be a reflection of what is going on in greater society. I don't Once, know what to do about that. Yeah, I, I know. It's a, it's, a, it's a tragic situation. I think what we need to do is look at what's going on in the inner cities and hope to try to work on that. But to take your point one step further, as you recall, when Branch Rickey left the Dodgers, he went, of course, to the Pittsburgh Pirates. He went to the Pirates, yes. Now, one of the things that he did when he was at the Dodgers was they had this 
young kid who they had just signed um, by the name of Roberto Clemente. Yes, and I know the story he, about how he was signed. It's very he, interesting. Okay. Roberto was signed. Well, the Giants wanted to sign Clemente, and they would have played him with Willie Mays. Right. And that would have really threatened the Dodger attendance in New York. They wanted to play him with Willie Mays and Don Mueller. Right. And the Dodgers found out about it, and they said, no, we've got to sign him. So they signed right. him before the 54 season, mm-hmm. uh, and they signed him for a bonus, which meant that he was unprotected in the draft. And that's how right. the Pirates drafted him. But the Pirates found out about him. Branch mm-hmm. Rickey uh, wanted to get Joe Black, who was at uh, Montreal at the time. He mm-hmm. sent Clyde Sukaforth, who had been his coach in right. Brooklyn. He sent him down to scout him, and he said, I don't know about Black. He said, but I just saw this guy in right field throwing line drives in. He's going to be your number one draft pick. Yeah. And that's how Roberto became a bucko. But mm-hmm. uh, having, having said that, what you said is right on the money, is mm-hmm. that at that time there was a quota system in the major leagues. They mm-hmm. could not have brought Roberto up for another reason, which is why they assigned him to Montreal. They mm-hmm. had Sandy Amrose at the time, who, mm-hmm. stayed, who won the only World Series the Dodgers won in Brooklyn because of his catch in 55. Mm-hmm. And they made the decision to bring up Amrose instead of Clemente. So mm-hmm. those quotas, what you and I are saying, were on the same page. Right. Those quotas were a reflection of America at that time. You never saw a mm-hmm. black star on television at that time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what is going on, let me make this clear, and I will not back off this. Mm-hmm. What is going on with these disturbances is a reflection of Donald Trump's America, where he is dividing race against race, class against class for his own political advantage. That is a reflection of what's going on. Speaking to that point, let's move to South Florida, where... Uh, there seems to be a bit of a um, a battle going on between um, a number of politicians in South Florida and the president over a phone call that he made to a, a woman who just lost her husband in uh, what happened in Africa. And suddenly, once again, here we are in the midst of a uh, a racially tinged situation. Well, you know, there's an old Jewish saying that you know, Jim, uh, the word is mensch, and Donald Trump does not know how to be a mensch. There are different versions of that phone call, but he could have, instead of getting into a fight with a family who has just had the most terrible thing that can happen to a person happen, the loss of a child, the loss of a husband while the mother, the wife is pregnant, instead of saying, uh, look, I'm going to call her, and I'm going to say I didn't mean to offend you in any way, I'm sorry if you were. I hope you'll forgive me. And your husband did great things for America. If Donald Trump had done that, he would have had universal acclaim throughout America. But he's not a mensch. He's not a gentleman. He is a mean-spirited individual. And now he is in this total uh, vituperative contest with a family. It's unseemly. It's undignified. It's offensive. It further polarizes America. He loves, he has this predilection for getting into scrapes with African-Americans. You saw this. He, he called the football players SOBs, except he used the words. Yet he said nothing about white neo-Nazi demonstrators who were returning at that time to Charlottesville, Virginia. He is a racial polarizer, and this is another manifestation of um, Do you believe that what we're seeing here is a, a game, for lack of a better way of putting it, of three-card Monty, where where the president doesn't want 
you to see where they're not working together, you know, he, on a number of different key situations like healthcare, like the budget, like other issues where right now there's chaos going on on the Hill. Uh, and he takes these social issues, which are so makes the, the country so raw that they're arguing on these issues and not paying attention to the fact that he's literally getting nothing passed on the legislative end of the deal. A hundred percent. That's exactly what it is. He believes that he profits from this social conflict politically, and he probably does. Look at when he was holding the rallies when he was campaigning for president. Uh, when that African-American older man came and uh, someone, actually it was a younger man, and an older white man took a punch at him. Mm-hmm. He loves this type of conflict. Conflict. He feels it benefits him. And this is what uh, Trump politics is. Uh, a good example of what you're talking about is the whole weekend that he first went out there about the NFL players and called them SOBs. Mm-hmm. He was tweeting like crazy about that, but he had hardly any tweets about Puerto Rico, where you were having the devastation of an American uh, commonwealth. Absolutely. He he may have gone on two or three times, and that was it. And I have, uh, you know, I used to uh, cover Puerto Rico when I was at EPA. I I was was down there five times a year. I was about to say that that you're, that I was about to say that you are someone that, has the chops to talk about this, given the fact that you were a member of the Bush administration in serving in, uh, you know, go ahead and let people know your re- responsibility during that time and during the time that you had to do that. And you know Puerto Rico. As Region 2 EPA administrator, I had four jurisdictions, New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time, uh, at least five times a year, down in Puerto Rico in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And I developed, I'm saying this, I'm not over-dramatizing anything. I developed a real personal connection with the people. Uh, mm-hmm. People of Puerto Rico are, have really been up against it, economically speaking. In fact, the median income is even less than America's poorest state, Mississippi. But these are people who pride themselves on maintaining a beautiful island, a clean environment. Every time I had an environmental initiative, which included closing a number of landfills, a judgment against the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, mm-hmm. uh, resulting in them having to do upgrades of $2 billion, they would bond for it. There was a bipartisan cooperation. These are good people. And in fact, I hope Puerto Rico soon in the near future becomes a state. However, having said that, this devastation is unbelievable. I'm in touch with people down there, people I work with at uh, the Caribbean Environmental Protection Division of EPA in Puerto Rico, and they're telling me how bad the water situation is. Puerto Rico never had an air pollution problem, but they had terrible problems regarding water. They mm-hmm. have problems now regarding power. This has to be at the top of the uh, president's agenda, and he's spending a lot of time uh, having contests with uh people who've suffered horrific losses, African-Americans' families who have suffered the worst loss that a family can sustain, uh, the death of a child. And uh, and he's just going along his uh, merry way. The shocking thing about Trump is that his, what I call his core base supporters, they never leave him. When he said that he could shoot somebody and they wouldn't care, he's absolutely right. Now, 
I think that Trump is headed for a political shellacking next year. I think the Democrats are going to capture the House of Representatives big time. I think there's a good chance they're going to capture the Senate. If they capture the House, he's going to be impeached. Whether he's removed removed from office will depend on how many Republican senators, sick of their treatment from him, decide to bolt and vote for him to be removed from office. But he is facing perilous political times in the not-too-distant future. Let me ask you the question about um, how complicit, especially in the situation with regard to Puerto Rico, how complicit is the is the Congress and the Senate in this regard? They, I mean, um, they have the power to, you know, to go in and to do things and to to make uh, uh, whatever needs to be done taken care of. Are they complicit in the fact that they're not doing it? I have a mixed view of that. Basically, the congressional role is to appropriate the funds necessary right. to do these things. The ac- actual implementation of preventative measures, remedial measures, has to be done by the executive branch, which basically is EPA and right. FEMA. Sure. And uh, what Trump, you know, Trump tried to cut the EPA budget. And right. I will give the Congress credit for this. They prevented him from getting the most severe cuts. Mm-hmm. However, they can't stop him from things like eliminating the uh, clean power plan, uh, right. which not only is a problem with climate change, coal is air poison. You you know, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, Scott Pruitt is exalting coal. Scott Pruitt is an environmental menace. And mm-hmm. coal is pure air poison. There's nothing that motivates me more than limiting, and in fact, elimin- uh, eventually eliminating the usage of coal and substituting for it nuclear power or renewables of various forms. Well, you and I came from an area where coal was king. And uh, my grandfather was a coal miner. My grandfather died from black lung. My uncle ran, ran coal mines in the state of West Virginia and lost hundreds, unfortunately, of men um, who, you know, to mine cave-ins. Um, De- Denora, 1948. Sure. I mean, there are a num- number of people in West Virginia and other places that passed away. I've always wondered why not wind why not solar i mean there's plenty of 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 land over there there's plenty of opportunity where you could begin that uh, that changeover uh, i mean you've for those of you who are not familiar with how good wind is and obviously you are alan i i strongly suggest taking a trip to southern california drive between los angeles and palm springs and you will see firsthand how one-third of Southern California gets their, their, you know, their electricity. The problem with wind, and you're right, it is a good clean power, as is solar, is there is a significant expense involved because uh, you can build a nuclear plant on something like 1.6 acres. Right. It takes you uh, 80 acres uh, for a solar facility and something mm-hmm. like 200 acres for a, com- a comparable wind facility. But they should be encouraged. But I actually think the best course for government now should be the encouragement of nuclear power and also natural gas, because nat- because natural gas is far less of mm-hmm. a pollutant than coal. Coal is just like burning poison in your air. Mm-hmm. It, it is a terrible threat, not only in terms of climate change and the greenhouse gas effect. Mm-hmm. It's even more of a health threat. Let me ask you a quick question about um, someone who I have great respect for, um, someone uh, I've 
that we've both uh, had occasion to chat with, um, and that's Senator Lamar Alexander, uh, a true right. nice man and uh, a statesman along the lines of uh, John McCain. He and Patty Murray have come together with what uh, they've they hope to be uh, a bipartisan fix, not a solution, but a, you know something to get the the ball rolling along the bipartisan role of getting healthcare back in the uh, you know uh, on track. And uh, right now, you know, we're, we're going to see how um, you know if people can can. Do something along bipartisan lines as opposed to going on party lines. What are your thoughts on the what you see or what you know of Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray's uh, legislation? Lamar Alexander was a great friend of uh, one of my favorite people, perhaps my all-time favorite person in New Jersey uh, politics, uh, former Governor Tom Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, they served as governors together. They worked well together. Lamar, Lamar Alexander is a great man. And he is a believer in partisanship. He would have been a great president. Unfortunately, he never got that far. Having said that, I don't know if they're going to get enough votes to override a presidential veto. I wish they could. I don't know what's going to happen with health care. But here again is an area where Trump fiddles while Rome burns. He's fiddling, trying to figure out the maximal political advantage he can get out of all of this. And uh, this is where he's short-sighted. There is none he can get. Uh, put it this way, I feel I, I feel now and I have felt in the past that Obamacare did have some expense problems that did lack cost controls. However, Obamacare also resulted in many more Americans uh, getting health care. And America wants, whether it is Donald Trump likes it or not, America wants some assurance that everyone will have coverage of some sort. sort. And all the years, this is where I criticize my own Republican Party. All the years they invade against Obamacare, and they had a right to do that, they never really sat down and came up with an alternative. That's been a big problem. So, all right, now they could get rid of Obamacare, but what's their alternative? The public wants an alternative. They don't have one. I can give Donald you, Trump. I can give you a quick quote, and this was, um, you know, I was there covering the situation during the Affordable Care Act uh, when it was going, you know, through once it got through one of the first people i looked for was lamar alexander and i said i you know where does it go from here he goes uh this was 2010 he said it really becomes you know really kicks in between 2012 and 2013 and once that happens he goes it we're never going back he said well, he's right he's right, right. He, they can't he go said back at that he point. said what we need to do he said as a party, he's talking about the Republicans at this point in time. He says, we need to come together with the Democrats. And he goes, and let's sit down and let's fix what I think is wrong. And he said, at that point, so we're talking all the way back going four years back now to 2013. That's that's how long Lamar Alexander has been on the bandwagon of let's fix this and uh, and get it done. In large part, because what Lamar Alexander as a former governor, much like John, um, you know, much like what's going on in um, in Ohio uh, with uh, John Kasich and um, some of the other governors, um, Republican governors are looking at this and saying, look, this needs, you know, we you can say all the wonderful things you want about how, you know, you can 
repeal and replace. But in the meantime, we have serious problems within our states, and what you're talking about isn't going to fix it. Absolutely. Now, there's one thing that the Republicans might be able to get Democratic cooperation on. This is about the only good thing they've done in health care this session. It's one of the few things that Trump has put forward that is constructive. I have liked the idea of association health plans, which would allow small businesses to band together and uh, use their joint financial pool to uh, get a good plan for people employed by small businesses. I, I have felt that that's not a complete solution, but that's a good one. Unfortunately, for Trump, health care, despite all of his protestations of he wants bipartisanship, he loves conflict. He feels conflict benefits him. He loves to knock and rebuke other people. And in that atmosphere, you are not going to get a good, joint, cooperative, bipartisan solution. Simple as that. Well, I think that um, I do agree with you that I think that might be one place where uh, you can find some some uh, some common ground. And I think that uh, under the circumstances, um, we will see how it works out. And uh, so let me ask you this one, my friend. Um We've covered a lot of ground here in the last few minutes. Um, I know you've got a lot of things going on in your state of New Jersey at this point in time. What are some of the things that we should be looking out for, some of the things that you are focusing on as we move forward? The gubernatorial elections in New Jersey and in uh, also in Virginia. The mm-hmm. New Jersey election, uh, because of the unpopularity of Chris Christie, uh, Phil uh, Murphy is expected to win. Plus, he has a big money advantage over uh, Kim Guadagna. Now, he's very much on the left. He is basically New Jersey's answer to George Soros. However, mm-hmm. it looks like he's going to win. And uh, if he if he does win, uh, that's another state house for the Democrats as they begin their comeback for the uh, 2020 elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia is interesting because Virginia is now a blue state. And uh, in Virginia, you have, uh, you know, Northam is the uh, Democrat lieutenant governor running for governor. Mm-hmm. However, uh, the Republican candidate is someone I know and have a high regard for, Ed Gillespie. He was a very key political person sure. in the Bush administration. Now, he's tied. So I think you're going to see a lot of Republican money go in there. The difficulty for Ed, he definitely is not a Trump guy, but he's had to reach out to the Trumpists in order mm-hmm. to uh, consolidate his base. and. That may be something that is necessary in this era, but it's something that a lot of us people who work for George W. Bush find somewhat uh, unpalatable. But we understand also why Ed has to do that. I don't know who's going to win there. It's neck and neck. It, it well, really Ed's is a, Ed's a good man, uh, but I do feel that if he has to pull himself too far to the right, it's going to kill him in northern Virginia. I think you're right. But uh, as you know, better than almost any of my colleagues yeah. in the journalistic field, Virginia is really two states. It's Northern right. Virginia, which right. has an influx of uh, you know African Americans and mm-hmm. academic people, and then Southern Virginia, which is the old Confederacy. Right. And so on election night, we want to see where the votes are coming in. I I agree with you that if he goes too far to the right, uh, that he will lose. I I think that I I keep looking at this campaign. I remember what happened on election night last year when Hillary Clinton pulled out Virginia. Uh, a good friend of mine who uh, lives down in Alexandria was telling me, even when Trump was ahead, he kept saying, no, nah, she's going to pull it out. You know, he, he was able to read uh, where the returns are coming from. Mm-hmm. So this could be a long election night in Virginia. Be, you know, it, I don't think we're going to know right away. 
No, I agree. I think this is going to be a, a nail biter um, if you're on the either political side of the coin, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it's going to be a nail biter all the way down the line on that one. Um, and um, one quick one. I know your buddy Steve Bannon there is out to oh, uh, to go crazy on the Republican Party. Do you think he's Bannon, going to? Uh, no, he's, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, do you feel that Bannon uh, will be able to pull across the finish line? Um, two, three, four, one. How many people do you think Bannon will be able to pull across the finish line uh, in these Republican places where he's actually primarying some people who are existing people like Jeff Flake and, and others. He will either be successful in uh, pulling in maybe, as you mentioned, two, three or four uh, insurgent candidates, uh, basically uh, knocking off incumbents who would be likely to win if they didn't have primaries in their states. But whatever, whether he is successful at uh, ousting the incumbent at the primary or whether he loses with his candidate by a slight margin, he is going to make sure that the Democrats win those seats. He's very bad for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. This kind of civil war guarantees the Democrats a lot of victories that they otherwise wouldn't get. He's a totally destructive force, Steve Bannon. Alan, where can we find you on social media and where can we read your uh, fine work? Well, you can uh, read my Facebook page, uh, contact me. You can become friends of mine, Alan Joel Steinberg. Uh, my Twitter handle, I'm very active with Twitter these days. Uh, I don't put out the abuse of things that Trump does. It's at a Steinberg 613. And you can read my column. I'm doing about two columns a week on InsiderNJ.com, I-N-S-I-D-E-R-N-J.com. And well, uh, you'll find the coverage interesting. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll link all that stuff in our uh, show box below so that everybody can find you without too much trouble. They can just read it in the uh, linkage in the box and then click on And uh, if you're not reading uh, Alan Joel Steinberg, then you are not finding out what's going on in politics, my friends. Well, that brings to a close yet another edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. Now, if you haven't yet subscribed to us, well, then, first of all, shame on you. It's very easy to do. We can be sent to your phone on a weekly basis by simply downloading us at either the iTunes Store or Google Play. You can subscribe to us at Blog Talk Radio, or if you have the popular podcast app, Stitcher, where some of the most outstanding podcasts done on every possible subject can be found. We're proud to be part of their family as well right there on the Stitcher app. Plus, if you're one of the over 124 million people, myself included, who have the TuneIn app, then just search the Politically Incorrect Podcast, hit the favorite button, and you'll have us on your TuneIn app. So it's that easy to get us sent free to your phone each week. Okay, special thanks to our guest and good friend, Alan Steinberg, former member of the George W. Bush administration, for joining us this week and sharing his views. So until next week, I'm Jim Williams, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. <laughs>